0: So, Bill and Chris have had a great opportunity to be away. And um, generally, what happens is um, when, when Bill's going to be gone, he throws it out there months in advance and says, you know, to the leadership team, if anybody, you know, feels led to step up and, and speak to do so. And um, generally, my, you know, the way that I decide if I'm going to take that opportunity is, you know, is, is the Lord. Teaching me something? Is he revealing something to me? Is he giving me something to say? Or do I just need to, you know, open up the word and do a random point and say this is what I want to teach on? And I think probably all the guys do that because generally if somebody steps up, it's because you know the Lord's been teaching them something. And uh, so when he said he was gonna be gone, I really wanted to take the opportunity to share a little bit about something that the Lord's been teaching me and something that he's been working on me about. And um, so what we're gonna talk about this morning is grace. And so this, uh, the, the, the challenge that we have when we decide to talk about grace is, well, you know, what do we say? If you know God's word from page one to page, you know, 2000, wherever it is, um, it's, it's all about grace. And so it's really difficult to say, okay, how are we going to pinpoint that? What I want to talk to you this morning is I'm going to to talk to you about grace after grace. And this comes from a passage that we read actually this last week in Krabby that kind of reinforced what God's been showing me. I'm going to talk to you about uh, kind of two different elements of grace this morning, really three. I'm going to talk to you about, um, first we're going to establish what is grace and what is the grace that we receive. The second thing I want to talk to you about is how we turn that grace around and extend it to others. And then I want to end by talking to you about the extent of grace where grace begins and where it ends, so that we can have a kind of a clear picture of this, because I believe that in, in our lives as Christ followers, which I hope that you are, and if not as a as a person interested in Christ, you're here because there's something that's drawn you here. You're not here by random chance. You're not here because you didn't have anything better to do. At 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, I can give you a list from here to there of things that well, I would love to be doing. But you're here this morning because there's something that that kind of pricks your mind a little bit, something that draws you in, and I believe that is the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to dig into this morning. So if you would, bow with me together. We're going to go ahead and jump right in, and we're going to work through this and see if we can get a good picture of the grace uh, that's been extended to us. Father, I do pray right now as we get into your word that you would let your word speak above all else. Father, as we dig into different passages that you've, um, that you've put before me this week and, and over the past few months, that, uh, Lord, that they would just speak right into our hearts. That people would be drawn to you, that we would all be drawn closer to you, and have even a more thorough understanding of what has been offered to us through your Son. And we pray this in his name, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so the first thing that I think we need to do when we talk about grace is we have to establish what is grace. All right, so here is um, a working definition of grace. This is when we're talking about God and we're talking about his grace that he extends to us, it is an unmerited, unearned, undeserved, unending favor. We're talking about the favor that God extends to us. God extends his grace to us in an unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and unending favor. We're going to dig into that a little bit more, but I think it's important for us to kind of set that up so we're not talking. When I say grace, you're not thinking of bowing your head before a meal. A lot of people say that they're going to say grace. That's a different type of grace. Um, But that's what we're going to discuss this morning. If you would, I want you to uh, start flipping in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to kind of establish there. We're going to dig in a little bit to that passage. Now, we experience grace between one another and in our, in our family, maybe in our culture, and um, I wanted to throw out a few examples of the grace that we see daily and some things that take an unbelievable amount of grace on, on people's parts. Um, a couple examples would be um, everybody may in their, in their life have been involved with a drug addict. And a lot of times drug addicts um, destroy relationships and destroy families and destroy everything around them. And they leave behind them a a huge trail of, of misery, of heartbreak. And it's a beautiful picture when they can come back to a family after all the hurt and all the sorrow and all the things that they've caused and be able to be ready for a new change and a family can extend them grace. And they can say, you know what? Come back in. Come back into our family. We, even though they haven't done anything to earn this, but the family opens up their arms, opens up their heart and says, though you've hurt us in the past, come back to us and let's try this one more time. That's grace. That's an example of grace, though there may be a lot of things around it. It's something that we can look at and say, that's graceful. Um, Another one I can think of is infidelity in marriage, something that's rampant in in our culture and our world. Um, when uh, uh, one spouse goes away and, and becomes unfaithful to their husband or to their wife, and then in the same way leaves a trail of destruction behind them. But a spouse who can extend grace after repentance has happened and be able to accept that person back, it's an unbelievable thing, an unbelievable challenge. Sometimes it can't happen, but sometimes it can. And what an amazing picture of grace one of my favorite stories right now um, came from Winter Jam. If you were there, uh, Matthew West just blew my mind with some of the stories that he told. And he told a beautiful picture of Grace where there was a young man who was involved in a drunk driving accident. And uh, man, this one just like stuck out to me. It was so powerful that um, he, he killed a young lady. And uh, if you remember, in the courtroom, he was, he was heartbroken over what he did and um, you know, and he, he went to the family. Sometimes they give him that face-to-face contact, which is incredible, and he's apologizing. And, uh, man, everything in our culture says what for that family? It says, he should go to jail forever. He should die for that. You know, we would never say to the family, you, you know what, you should just forgive him. He, he made a mistake. You know, that's not, that's not really the way we, we, we believe in, in, in punishing him. And, and he got punished. He got sentenced to go away and in, in the family, as he apologized, the mom went forward and embraced him. Like, that's crazy, right? She embraced him, and she said those, those words that he'll never forget, I forgive you. And, uh, and the story goes on, and there's, there's a lot more to it, and it's just this really amazing picture of, of them getting involved into his life while he's in prison. And, and get this, this is, this is what blew my mind. They go before the judge, and they speak on his behalf for an early release really? Like how crazy is that? Grace. It's grace. I believe that they've experienced grace in their life and they, they, they return that to him. In Ephesians chapter two, it gives us um, just an awesome picture of the grace that has been extended to us. Let get there and we'll dig into this a little bit. We're going to read Ephesians chapter two, verses one through eight. You can see it up on the screen. So uh, follow along with me. Anytime in Scripture you see a but, you need to circle it. Because when a but is in Scripture, it means that there's something amazing about to happen. But, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realm of Jesus Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not by works, so that no one can boast. Man, what a rich passage, grace, that is grace right there. I really, truly believe that in order to be able to continue into our conversation on grace, we have to establish our foundation in the grace that has been extended to us. Now, we can look at grace a couple ways. We can look at grace as a church word. Man, we do that all the time. You know, oh yeah, God's grace, boom, we move on. Ah, I don't really know what it is. I challenged our our, uh, students in Krabby this week, if you were there... The word Easter, resurrection, it's important, right? We all establish, man, that's critical, that's, that's a huge thing. And I said, what if the Bible was written and the resurrection story wasn't there? Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the end. What would it change? I got a lot of blank stares. I got a lot of, you know, we, we threw out the church answers, you know, because he had to be resurrected, Right. But we're trying to get to the root of why that was important, and it's something that is so easy for us just to roll right over. And I think it's the same way with grace. We have to understand, that our, we have to understand our broken position in order to be able to understand the full scope of grace. Let me say that again. We have to understand our broken position to be able to understand the full, scro- the full scope of God's grace. In Ephesians, he says something that, uh, um, that I love. In verse 4, it says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Even when we were dead. So grace, what grace does for us is it sets us free. It makes us alive. It takes us from a point where we were dead in our sins, where we could do nothing for ourselves, where we couldn't please him no matter what we did because we were so full of sin, and it makes us alive in Christ. It brings new life into us. Uh, another place in Scripture, there we go, where um, this is actually kind of the cornerstone verse um, that kind of put the cap on what I had been praying through and what the Lord had been revealing. And it's uh, from the Apostle John in the Gospel of John. And uh, like I said, we read this in Crabby this week and it just stuck out to me. And I was like, man, that's, that really seals the deal for me. Um, the Apostle John opens up the Gospel basically by saying, this is my purpose, this is why I'm going to write you this book, and he says it's because of who Jesus Christ was and is, and he is going to lay it out there. So in John 1, 16, it says, um, I tell you what, you can read it in your Bible. Um, the version that we've been studying in Crabby in, um, because of the book that we're going through is in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and I love the way that they phrase it there, and it says this, indeed, we have all received grace after grace from Christ's fullness, it says, we have all received grace after grace from Christ's fullness, the fullness of who Christ was, which is fully man, which is fully God, which is one who laid down his life, died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected on the third day. And because of that, we receive grace after grace. It doesn't just say that we've received a little bit of grace, that we can kind of stick into the corner of our lives and that can affect this and affect that. It says grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Think about the grace that's upon your life. And the crazy thing is, we don't even know what kind of grace that God has extended to us. If you know him, if you trust him as your savior, you know that he's extended grace and has taken you from a place of death to life and given you eternal life. But think about the things, the daily things that we may not see as God protects us and guides us and allows us to have grace that we may never even know about. I want to share a story with you um, from um, one of, uh, really one of the most beautiful storytellers um, that I've ever read. His name's Max Lucado, and um, he wrote a book uh, many years ago, back in the 90s, called In the Grip of Grace. And he, he deals with the issue of grace and presents some beautiful pictures, and that's what I like about um, Max Lucado. He, he really presents um, pictures and visuals uh, for concepts that he's teaching. And I'm a very visual person. When I see something, I understand it. And so as he tells stories, I can see that. So I want to share this with you. And this is a a very light, very brief introduction as he begins the book. And he says it this way. If you don't know Max Lucado, he's a um, very, very highly acclaimed writer. He's also a pastor of a very large church, has been for a long time, has a lot of credentials. And this is what he says. For years, I owned an elegant suit complete with coat, trousers, even a hat. I considered myself quite dapper in the outfit and was confident others agreed. The pants were cut from the cloth of my good works, sturdy fabric of deeds done, and projects completed. Some studies here, some sermons there, and many people complimented my trousers, and I confess I tended to hitch them up in public so that people would notice them. My coat was equally impressive. It was woven together from my convictions. Each day, I dressed myself in deep feelings of religious fervor. So strong, in fact, that I was asked to model my cloak of zeal in public gatherings to inspire others. And, of course, I was happy to comply. While there, I'd also display my hat, a feathered cap of knowledge, formed with my own hands from the fabric of personal opinion. And I wore it proudly. Surely God is impressed with my garments, I often thought. And occasionally I strutted into his presence uh, with my garments on so that he could compliment the self-tailored wear, and he never spoke. His silence must mean admiration, I convinced myself. But then my wardrobe began to suffer. The fabric of my trousers grew thin. My best work started becoming unhitched. I began leaving more undone than done, and what little I did was nothing to boast about. No problem. I thought I'll just work harder. But working harder was the problem. There was a hole in my coat of convictions. My resolve was threadbare. A cold wind cut into my chest. I reached up to pull my hat down firmly, and the brim ripped off in my hands. Over a period of a few months, my wardrobe of self righteousness became completely unraveled. I went from tailored gentleman's apparel to beggar's rags. Fearful that God might be angry at my tattered suit, I did my best to stitch it together and cover my mistakes, but the clothes were so worn. And the wind was so icy, I gave up, and I went back to God. Where else could I go? On a wintry Thursday afternoon, I stepped into his presence. Not for applause, but for warmth. My prayer was feeble. I feel naked. You are, and you have been for a long time. And what he did next, I'll never forget. I have something to give you, he said. He gently removed the remaining threads, and picked up a robe, a regal robe, the clothing of his own goodness. He wrapped it around my shoulders, and his words to me were tender: "My son, you are now clothed with Christ." And I, I love that story, and I believe it speaks so, so true to us, about grace that we experience. I've put a picture up here of some very, very ragged clothes. And this may be where you find yourself this morning where you've tried so hard to put on this, this front, to put on this, this face to everyone that everything's okay, you know that you've got it together, you, know, you polish up and, and make the outside look pretty, um, but on the inside you really truly know that you're, you're just in rags. Your good works fall short. Maybe you, you f- are finally starting to get to a place where you realize that you can never do anything on your own to please God. If you you plan to outweigh your good works with your bad works, it's never going to happen. It can't happen because we're in sin. And in order to really truly experience grace, in order to really truly be able to accept the grace from God that's extended to us, it's critical that we understand the broken state that we all are in without Christ. I'd like to move on next to the grace that we extend to others. Because If you're at a place where you say, you know what, I understand that. I've accepted that grace. I live in that grace. That grace clothes me every day. I cover myself in the righteousness of Christ because my righteousness is like filthy rags. Then my next question is, how now do we live? That's the title of a Chuck Colson book, and, and, and I think it's relative. Now, what do we do with that? If we go to church on Sundays and go to Bible study and we say, You know, man, the grace of God, you know, save me from my sins. What an amazing grace that I have. And we walk out these doors and we go to farmers. How do you treat the waitress? I mean, if you really have been extended this amazing grace, don't you think we're going to return that and we're going to extend that grace to others? Our example in scripture, we could go through story after story after story of Jesus extending grace to those who deserved nothing, who didn't deserve his time, didn't deserve his attention. How do we extend that grace to others? When we understand our gift of grace, we extend that grace to others. The the key component in this is our. You can change that to my. When I understand my gift of grace... I extend that grace to others. Now the story that the Lord's really been working on me is is Jacob, the story of Jacob um, and the story of Joseph. And um, what I wanted to do uh, briefly this morning is I want you guys to kind of help me. I want to get everybody caught up to the story in the Old Testament towards the end of Genesis. And it's a beautiful beautiful story and I think it um, amazingly portrays um, grace. And I think we're going to be able to reap some truth from that this morning. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask that you guys give me a hand. Um, a lot of you have been in God's Word for a long time. Um, some of you have grown up in Sunday school. Some of you, we, we lost our, our um, uh, not grapple, our blast kids, so uh, hopefully they know the story. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you kind of help me put together the story of Joseph, and it's going to catch us up to where we're going to jump in this morning. So um, somebody tell me, I think I already said it, who was Joseph's dad? Jacob. Jacob. All right, good. Who was Joseph's mom? Yeah, that one was a little tougher, Rachel. Okay, so um, there was this big, long battle between moms and between you know this wife and that wife, and you know Joseph finally came along. How many brothers did Joseph have? I hear eleven. I hear twelve. Um, remember the uh, twelve tribes of Jacob came from there. Um, we all know this story, right? You've seen Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. That should be the heading in Genesis, right? Probably not, but you've probably seen the story. So yeah, he had 12 brothers. Okay, so what happened to Joseph? He, his dad loved him. He was the son that he had been waiting for for years and years and years, and his dad showed him special favor. So what did Jacob give Joseph? All right, the coat of many colors, right? Brandon and I were talking about this yesterday, and I'm assuming that the other brothers probably had, I don't know, camel skin or goat skin or something. Here's Joseph with these fine threads. All right, so Joseph and his brothers, they're doing their thing. And all of a sudden, Joseph has these dreams, right? He has multiple dreams. And Joseph, you know, maybe not thinking real clearly, his brothers hate him already. He goes to his brothers and he says, This is what these dreams are saying. What did all the dreams have in common? What's that? That's right, that he ruled over them. So he's like, hey, brothers who hate me. So I had this dream and it was really cool. And you guys were all sheaves of grain in the field. And here I was a sheaf of grain and you just bowed down to me. Nice. So anger building. And then he's like, and then all the stars and the stars in the sky, there were 12 of them. And then there was me and they bowed down. And, and the anger goes more, right? So he's building this up. So what is, the, uh, what is the climax there of the anger and the hatred of Joseph's brother to Joseph? What do they do with him? They threw him down in a well that had no water in it, and they said, We're going to kill him. So they take his coat and they put it in a bunch of blood, and they go to his dad and say, He's dead. But remember, there was one brother who didn't want to kill him. What was his name? What's that? Simeon Reuben. I don't remember. Judah. Benjamin, I can't remember which one, but one of them said, don't kill him, that would be on our hands, that's a bad deal, so all of a sudden they're sitting there and this caravan goes passing through, and they come up with a brilliant idea, let's take him out of the well and sell him into slavery, right, that's much better, let's not kill him, let's make him a slave, they'll take him away, we'll never see him again, right, good plan, so As we move on, he goes to Egypt, and he's a slave in Egypt. And who is his, who bought him? Potiphar. Good job. Okay, so he's working for Potiphar, Joseph is, I mean, he's, he's kind of got it together. He is um, he's a good-looking guy. Um, he, you know, has been trained pretty well. He's had a lot of special privilege. Um, and he is a hard worker. And he makes a place for himself as a slave and just works himself into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's a very high-up official in Egypt. But what happens that ruins everything? Right. A woman. Uh, Oh, it just was. I wasn't saying anything. I love women, especially my wife. Okay, so Potiphar's wife comes along and says, she grabs him and says, sleep with me, sleep with me. She won't let it go. He says no, and finally he leaves his robe behind um, trying to escape her, and she lies and messes it all up. So where does he go? He goes into jail. Okay, so he's been way up here, now he's way down here. And in jail, he meets two guys from Pharaoh's household. Do you remember what they were? A chef and a butler, that's right. So two guys that are right access to, to uh, Pharaoh. And uh, they have dreams, right? And, um, and, and he talks to them about dreams and he says, this is what the dream means. I believe one of you is going to um, be brought back. And I think the other one died, right? Didn't he say, sorry, bad news, you're going to die. So bad deal for him. But uh, Joseph says, don't forget me. When you go back, don't forget me. Don't leave me here. Well, they do. So how many years go by after the um, official or the the servant in Pharaoh's house goes away? How many years pass? Tough, tough question. Two years. Two years go by. Joseph's wallowing in the prison, but Joseph is Joseph, and he's working his tail off, and he's being um, he's just being a good guy. Everybody respects him, no matter where he goes. It's a great picture. So. Um, Then all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. And all of a sudden, light bulb, hey, there's this guy, and his name's Joseph, and he's in the jail. And all of a sudden, what happens? He's taken out of jail, that's right, and he becomes what, what position in Egypt? number two. That's right. Egypt was huge. You've seen the pyramids. Huge, big kingdom. He was number two. So he went from the lowest place in a jail to the number two man in Egypt. All right. So um, long story short, he goes and he says, uh, Pharaoh, your dream says that there's going to be how many years of drought and how many years? uh, I'm sorry. We're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of drought. So get yourself ready. Man, what an amazing. Yeah, John. Famine, that's right, good job. So it was famine, so it was everything. Everything was gonna be gone. So he said, we gotta stock up. We gotta start taking what we can and we gotta build it up and we'll stay alive for these seven years of drought. A huge wisdom from the Lord in that. All right, so that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves with him being number two in Egypt. And now remember, he's got 12 brothers and they're, they're, they're down a ways. You know, they're, they're off in, in another land. They're in the desert. And um, guess what happens? They have seven years of plenty. They don't know any better. They're doing what they do. And then all of a sudden, the famine hits. And what happens? They get hungry. There's nothing left. There's nothing left. And they're not even all the way through the famine yet, and they're looking for food. So they send, Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt. And they come in. And um, there's a couple different interactions of Joseph, you know, kind of setting him up and and, um, you know, calling them spies, and, and he throws one brother in the jail and says, go home, get your other brother. They don't have a clue who he is. So, you know, imagine this, you know, this guy from the desert, and now he's in Egypt. And, you know, of the pictures that I've seen, you know, they've got, you know, the, the metallic things on their head and the hair and the eye shadow and all that stuff. I don't know if that's true. Um, that's just what I think of. So they don't recognize him. And uh, basically he says, go home, get every brother. I want all of you to come back here and, and talk to me again. So this is where we're going to pick up the story in uh, Genesis chapter 45. Now, um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what happens when all the brothers finally come back and uh, they're standing before Joseph. Let me rephrase that. They weren't standing, were they? What were they doing? Kneeling. Wow, crazy. Crazy. They don't even know it, but they're fulfilling those dreams that Joseph had years and years ago. What an amazing thing. So at this moment right now, in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph has an opportunity. He's been given an opportunity, and our question is, what does he do with it? Let's read Genesis chapter 45, and uh, we're going to read the first 15 verses, because this is If you're a a story person, this is a story you need to read. I love this story. This is, I mean, this is as good as any Hollywood movie. From the beginning to the end, it has everything that you need for a thrilling story. And this is kind of the the climax here. All right, it says, Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants, And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Remember, they have no idea who he is at this point. and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it Joseph said to his brothers I am Joseph is my father still living but his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence can you imagine this man with more power than anyone they'd ever seen in their lives they just found out that he's the one that they betrayed years and years ago and left pretty much left for dead I think it's funny that he said I am Joseph how's my dad? They were just dumbfounded. They couldn't do anything. They didn't know what was going to happen. Verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Grace. Do you see how Joseph is seeing the grace that he's been given? The grace on his life to be sold into slavery. To be completely betrayed by his own brothers And then to be taken to the place he is. He doesn't just say, God protected me and put me here. He doesn't say, I worked my tail off and I got to a great position. He says, God had a plan. God knew what he was doing and he recognized that and he accepted that. What an amazing picture of God's grace. Verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor afforded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. He threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Wow. Can you imagine? How many of you have had... Things in your life that have just been so disgusting with your family that you don't want anything to do with them. I would never say that none of you have experienced anything this bad because that's probably not true. You've seen it on a different scope. But, but check your heart right now. Could you do that? Could you, could you see your brothers for, the, for not the first time, but, but embrace your brothers for the first time? Have that face-to-face interaction where you know that they know he's Joseph and he knows they're the brothers. Could you embrace them and kiss them as if they hadn't betrayed you the years ago? man, what an amazing place. And that's why I truly believe that in order for us to be able to extend God's grace, we must see our position and we understand the grace that's been afforded to us. Joseph understood. He saw what God was doing and he accepted that and he embraced that. Ah, I love it. I love it. So my question to you this morning as we start to wrap up is, how much grace do you extend How much grace do you extend in your marriage to your spouse? Let me hear an ouch. Man, that one's tough. That gets me. This is, I said God's revealing things to me. He's not revealing things for me to tell you. He's revealing things about me. How much grace do you extend to your children? How much grace do you extend to your friends? How much grace do you extend to your boss? One thing that we have to keep in mind is, no matter how much we think we know, we never know motives. And that's something that I catch myself in all the time. I mean, especially, guys, we're in a church here. Our church is havens for people who are just going to be loving and kind and all on the same page, and we live in this perfect harmony. Everybody say, no. No, we have a lot of problems in church. Not just Family Bible Church, but everywhere. And, and over the years, in my years that aren't that many, I know to some of you, but over my, my time in church, it just reve- it gets revealed to me over and over and over again that it's th- the biggest problem that we have is we don't extend the grace that God has given us to our brothers and sisters. We judge motives and we say, well, this person is not on the right page. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. God is not calling them to do that. He's telling us to do this and this person won't do it. And we, and we judge their heart. And I've been so guilty of doing this for so long and seeing people and and coming to these conclusions on, I know what this person's all about and I don't like it. And then eventually coming to find out that I was way off because we're people. And inside this shell, there's a whole lot going on that you don't understand and you don't understand and you don't understand. And that's the way it is with all of us. And if we can learn to accept the grace that's been given to us and extend that, Man, we can make a difference. We can make an impact. Sometimes it's hard. Some of those things that I shared at the beginning, those situations are hard to extend grace. And there's another whole side of, um, you know, setting boundaries and and perimeters and, and, um, you know, providing discipline and things like that. And and there's a lot of details to be thought about here. Um, But we have to keep in mind that sometimes when it's the hardest to extend grace, God can be glorified the most. What a beautiful picture to be able to see those times when God's, we get a glimpse of God's grace through how a person interacts with another person. Our actions speak louder than words, and I don't think that there's any other thing that we can do that can make a bigger impact than to extend grace and to love one another in the way that He has loved us. Not because we've done anything, but because it's an unmerited, unearned, undeserved, unending favor that we are to reflect to one another. The last thing that I want to talk to you about is the limit of grace because at what point does grace stop? At what point does grace become limited? At what point does grace become um, something that we don't extend? Aha, there it is. Um, 2 Corinthians 12.9 is the last verse that I want to share with you guys, and uh, I'm going to share you a a brief story, and we're going to get out of here. Um, But in uh, 2 Corinthians, um, Paul's writing here, and he gives us this glimpse into his life, and he gives us a glimpse into, uh, he's, he's basically talking about boasting, and he's saying, I'm going to boast right now. I'm going to boast to you, but I'm not going to boast to you about myself, because it would only be boasting of my weakness. And uh, in Second in, uh, Corinthians chapter 12, um, we're going to look, at, uh, we're gonna look at, at verse 8 and 9. And in, in Paul says, three times I pleaded, well, no, we're going to back up to verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there's been given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Uh, it's, it's a little bit unclear what that is. Um, Paul never gives us great detail. There's you know, some discussion on what it is, but something is like a thorn in his flesh. If you've ever had it, it's annoying and it hurts and it's painful and it's distracting from his ministry. And he says he believes that God gave it to him to keep him from becoming conceited. All right, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, and this verse is in red in my Bible, which means listen up. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I love that. Grasp on to that truth. My grace, his grace, Jesus Christ's grace is sufficient for us. Paul settled into that and said, even with this thorn, even with whatever it is that's plaguing me, Christ's grace is sufficient. And I encourage you and I encourage myself to remember as well that God's grace is sufficient. I said the limit of grace. The thing about it is, is grace is unlimitless. There's not a certain thing that we have to do if we start with our relationship with Christ. There's nothing that we can do to earn that grace. We don't have to clean ourselves up and make ourselves look good. Remember in the story, it's a a rag. There's nothing we can do. But His grace is sufficient. If your rags look like that, or if your rags are just shreds, or if it's just complete nakedness because you're at the end of your rope and there's nothing you can do, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And if we're to extend that, and if we're to live in Christ's example, we have to remember that his grace is sufficient for whatever else is going on. For those that have hurt us, his grace is sufficient. For those who have broken our hearts, his grace is sufficient. For whatever situation that we're dealing with in life, trust that his grace is sufficient to be able to extend that to others. Like I said, I want to leave you with one story, and um, I want to close, after this story, I want to tell you why I think that this is, is unfair, why this uh, just, just isn't quite right, doesn't sit quite well with me. It says, uh, this is written by a young lady, it says, in the spring of 2002, I left work early so I could have some uninterrupted study time before my final exam in the youth ministry class. And when I got to class, everyone was doing their last-minute studying, and the teacher came in, and he said that he would review with us before the test. And most of his review came right from the study guide, but there were some things he was reviewing that I'd never heard. And when questioned about it, he said they were in the book, and we were responsible for everything in the book. And we couldn't argue with that. And finally, it was time to take the test. Leave them face down on the desk until everyone has one, and I'll tell you to start, our professor instructed. When we turned them over, to my astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. The bottom of the last page said, this is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed this test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. You've just experienced grace. The professor then went around the room and asked each student individually, what is your grade? Do you deserve the grade that you're receiving? How much did all your studying for this exam help you prepare to achieve your final grade? Then he said, some things you learn from lectures, some things you learn from research, but some things you only learn from experience. You've just experienced grace. 100 years from now, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your name will be written down in the book. And you will have nothing to do with writing it there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. Wow. Praise God. Now, this is, this is why this is so unfair. Grace is limitless. The reason that that story is so unfair is because that was my professor. And that was my school. And that was my class. But I was two years late. That's not fair. I, was, I did everything that they did in that class. And I had to take the exam. Um I love this story because this this was a, just an amazing man in my life and he he preaches down the road at um, First Baptist Maryville. His name's Tom Hufty. And um, so I was in this class two years later. And so, it, it, I mean, it was, it was the talk of everything. Like, oh, you're in youth ministry class? Well, hopefully Dr. Hufty lets you have the grace test, you know, and you go in not knowing what that is. And, you know, before the exam, everybody's like, are you going to give us the grace test? And he says, nope, that's a one-time deal. And it's something that continues to teach. And I think it's a beautiful picture of grace because No matter what they did, they crammed it. And this is why it's not fair. Because one person in that class, they had given up on it and they didn't study. And this person over here, they just busted their tail and they poured everything they had into it. And in the end, they were both given an A on the exam. Remember the story of the thief on the cross? Man, that story can make people mad. Because that thief, remember, he's hanging next to Christ. And he says, you know, Jesus, remember me today in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me. He didn't have time to get a whole lot accomplished, right? You know, that's a pretty bad place to be when you meet your Savior. Three quarters naked, covered in blood, barely able to breathe. That's a pretty rough place. His list of accomplishments in this life, as far as we know, weren't much. But his grace is sufficient for that moment, for that person. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I leave you this morning with that, that through Christ we can have grace upon grace that first of all has to be something in our lives that we understand and it has to be something that we live daily with our interactions for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you and I give you praise for your grace upon grace that you've given us. Father, as we're here this morning, we're just, oh man, we're, we're, we're an interesting band of people here. Um, we come from all walks of life. Uh, Father, we've got some that um, from the outside look to be the cleanest people uh, with the best jobs, with the best family, with everything together. And we have people that come through our doors. Um, Father, that, that are struggling, that are hurt, that are empty, that are under their, their rope, that don't know where to go. And, Father, I trust that your grace is sufficient for all of us because you see us in the same way. You see us as sinners in need of your grace. Father, we give you praise for Jesus Christ as we continue in Bill's series of making much of Christ. Man, we do that this morning because without him, without Christ standing in our place, And putting a cloak of righteousness of his goodness over us, we stand before you naked and bruised and destroyed and hopeless. Father, may we embrace that this morning, each of us individually, in knowing you and experiencing and extending that grace. And we pray this in his awesome name. Amen.